the sound of praise for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Potasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, here's the Reb and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, it was so cold this week. As a member of the cloth, and I'm sure you find the same problem, I don't have the vocabulary to express how cold it is. Because you, you don't go to start up your car and you're sitting there and say, I cannot find the right words. And my tradition doesn't allow me to find the words that others can find. But it, it really was, it's brutal. Uh, and you, you know, you say start up your car. You make me think back at a, a car that I had, one of the early vehicles in my life. <laughs> the, oh, the Maserati. Uh, I, 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 not, yeah, Maserati. I had a Dodge Dart, man. Uh-huh. And in those days, they didn't have fuel injection uh-huh. engines. It was a carburetor. Do you remember the carburetor? I do. I remember cars without power steering. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, was a, that was a test. <laughs> See, I don't go that far back, audience. Yeah. I just want you to know. That was a rabbi. Yeah. But yeah, they had they had a carburetor, and, and it would get too cold. It would freeze up, and you had to pour gas into it and try to get it to start. Uh, now, you know, uh, most vehicles uh, start up right away because of the advancements in technology. And boy, is that important when it is zero degrees outside. That's why it's good that you have the driver. You don't have to start up the car. He goes out there, starts it up for you, then tells you now it's okay to come to the car. Uh, Why do you want to spread these rumors about me, Rabbi? Please. All right, let's talk about the events of the week. And obviously one of the most, wow, it had such a a positive ending, but going through it was so traumatic. And that is what happened in Colleyville, Texas. And uh, Reverend Bernard, my parents be looking down and saying, we went through the Holocaust. We never thought we'd see a day when people will be held hostage in, in a synagogue when Jews going to pray were unsafe in that setting. Now, you know, thankfully, it, it, uh, it, it's not something that happens weekly, but it shouldn't happen at all. And the fact that you have to have security plans, you have to think of, you know, what to do when there's an active shooter, uh, this is not what we should be, but it should not, you know, as people saying it should not deter, on the contrary, you know, this is, the response has to be, we are going to services, we are going to be there, this is a commitment we're going to make, we're not going to allow those who seek to separate us, who seek to destroy us, to define us. You know, security in churches is a new reality for many, for us, you know, at Christian Cultural Center, because... Yeah, you know, we have so many uh, uh, high-profile people who come, uh, and I have spoken out against, you know, certain things in our society uh, that we had to institute uh, uh, security systems and security personnel back in the early 90s, you know, why, why threats of uh, our church being bombed uh, in, the, in the early 90s because people were upset because of some of the things that uh, I was saying. And we, we formed a, a whole executive protection system and, you know, trained our, even our congregation to understand what, would, uh, what they need to do and how we were prepared in case there was some type of an emergency. And I will tell you, I was ridiculed 
I was criticized. Some of my colleagues say, well, where's your faith in God and all of this? You know, same people who have alarms on their car and their homes. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, but then there was one church shooting after another, synagogue uh, explosions. I mean, one thing after another in the last 30 years that here we are. You know, uh, it's, it's, I, I, I hope it doesn't become the norm, but it's something that we're hearing about too often. You know, the pray, what's the prayer? May God guard your going out and your coming in and get a security guard with him. Uh, you know, you, you, it's, it's, you're right. It's a new reality. But back to the, that story, firstly, we have to say thank you. Thank you, of course, to the Almighty. Uh, but thank you to the FBI. I know there was you know, uh, some concerns about a statement that, uh, at first, this was not an anti-Semitic act, which hard to fathom that it wasn't. When it was at a synagogue on a Sabbath, it wasn't in a department store. It was someone who, who spoke about the power of the Jews and called a rabbi in New York to help release a, a major terrorist because the Jews have all the power and America serves the Jews. But um, the rabbi, the, the heroism of the rabbi, uh, who was able to uh, facilitate a, an escape, uh, you know, throwing a chair at the hostage taker at a, at a weak moment uh, uh, when they seemed a little distracted, that hostage taker. But we'll find out the full story. Um, and yeah, but it, you know, it raises question because, you know, a house of worship is a welcoming space. It's an open space. And um, the report said that the, the gunman actually knocked on, on, on the door of the synagogue and uh, he was allowed to come in. He was welcomed in uh, because they thought the man needed shelter. And that's, that's who we are. That's, that's what we do. Yeah. And now, you know, you, you wonder if the person that you're, you know, welcoming in may not be a threat to you. Look, you've been to Europe. I've been to Europe. You can't get into a synagogue unless you have some identification, unless you mm. can prove you are the person you say you are. Um, and, you know, they'll do a background check if necessary if, if you don't have the proper credentials. But I think that new reality requires vigilance on our part. We just can't yeah. open our doors and risk lives. Um, you know, there's got to be that balance. And, you know, we want to be welcoming, but not, you know, when there's a plausible threat to the welfare of people. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's creating, for, for me, it creates a hermeneutic of suspicion, you know. Um, how, how do I interpret, you know, people who are coming? Am I, am I, are they, you know, guilty till proven innocent? Uh, you know, you know, I was part of the, I was in the film, Emmanuel 9, uh, talking about forgiveness and had the opportunity to uh, partly produce that. And uh, the same thing, Dylan Roop. Uh, was trying to get in, and there was a Bible study. They invited him in to mm. sit in the Bible yeah. study and to learn, to grow, to share, and not knowing that uh, he was there for uh, very wrong reasons. Yeah, we're going to have a guest on today, Alicia Wiesel, son of uh, Ellie and Marion Wiesel. And, you know, Ellie Wiesel was recipient of the uh, Nobel Peace Prize and the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom. Uh, and I, I think... The point can easily be made that at least now we're living in a time where the government doesn't support the behavior of the madman. Whereas in Europe, you know, we had government participation. Uh, but still, these are frightening times. Uh, and we need to look back at the past and see what, what is our responsibility in the present. So much yeah. to discuss today with Alicia yeah. Wiesel coming up. Stay tuned. We'll be back. So stay tuned. Right here on 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi. Rabbi. 
where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, I often judge people by how they treat their parents. And one of the people I've been blessed to meet and now know very well is Alicia Wiesel. No one honors legacy more than he does. The way he remembers his father. Uh, he has now become uh, a moral voice as his father was a moral voice. Speaking when acts of injustice take place against any people, but always there uh, when the Jewish people are victims. He's a proud Jew. Uh, he's very much uh, dedicated to his mother. As a matter of fact, Alicia, if I could tell the story, if you call Alicia's number, the voicemail will tell you if this is my mother, you can leave a message. If it's not, you can text me or email me. Uh, <laughs> if that doesn't speak about a prioritized love, I don't know what does. So, Alicia Wiesel, thank you so much. Uh, for thank being... you so much for having me back. Uh, only he can give you an introduction like that. You know that, Alicia. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you one other story about him, Reverend. We're going out to an event uh, on Long Island, and Alicia's in the back seat of my car, and I hear him speaking words of Talmud. And he gives me a shh, shh, and I'm realizing he is studying Talmud because we have this program called Daily Page, Daf Yomi, where you study one page of the Talmud each day. And he's talking to someone on the phone, his, his learning partner. Uh, they're talking Talmud for the next half hour. So for 30 minutes, I had to be totally silent, which was a very painful experience. But I got to learn Talmud with uh, Alicia Wiesel, so that was a good thing. So Alicia, talk to us. We're going to look at international... Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, as uh, noticed by the United Nations, commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. What, what is the message? I mean, you've spoken at Auschwitz. What is the message you want people to hear? First of all, thank you so much for having me back. There's two parts that I think about when I think about International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The first is that this is a day that was chosen to really reflect when the Soviets ar arrived at Auschwitz to liberate. So it's very much from the perspective of the Jews being saved uh, by the world, which is powerful. But it's interesting to note, of course, that when Israel celebrates or, or commemorates more appropriately uh, this memory of the six million and the memory of, of the Holocaust, we actually choose to remember the beginning of the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance. Mm -hmm. So it's always interesting to remember that there are these two different days one more passive, one a bit more active. But what I'm really thinking about, Rav Patasnik, this particular, and, and Reverend Bernard, this particular International Holocaust Day, is how the UN still, I think, has work to do. You mentioned that it's a UN occasion. It's when the UN commemorates it. Uh, my understanding is that today, actually on the 80th anniversary of the Wansi Conference, which is the conference where the Nazis first really got together and put together the specifications for how the final solution would unfold, that on the 80th anniversary, a UN resolution is being passed to um, urge action against Holocaust denial, and that this is a resolution that was put together by Israeli ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan. And that's very powerful, but I would say it's not enough, because the anti-Semitism that occurs at the UN quite regularly in the way that the country of Israel is demonized to an unbelievable point, to a point where it is condemned more than all other member states uh, combined. 
that says something about anti-Semitism still being alive and well, unfortunately, on the world stage. So I have other thoughts, but these are these are foremost upon them. You know, when I think of you talking about urging action, uh, many people don't know that uh, almost a million Jews had already been killed before other nations uh, wanted to get involved in it. Even the United States was slow to get involved until there was some pressure put on by the international community. Um, can you speak to that? Of course. I mean, international pressure is one of the things that I feel we're missing right now. I'm very much minded by an event that's going to be taking place two weeks from now, or, or two weeks after International Holocaust Day, Reverend Bernard, which is that um, you know during the 1936 Olympics, nobody had really yet been massacred. You know, the extermination camps were not up and running, but it was becoming very clear that Nazi Germany was going to be an increasingly hostile place to the Jewish people and to minorities. And yet the Olympics took place. And of course, we have a major human rights situation unfolding before our very eyes on the world stage. The Beijing Olympics are about to kick off in the first week of February. And the Uyghurs are arguably the biggest human rights violation on the planet right now. I don't think since World War II, there have been that many people interned as political prisoners simply for their race uh, since World War II. And I think that that's something that's unfolding in real time. We're speaking with Alicia Wiesel, a very important uh, voice in that moral uh, arena, sometimes an immoral arena where you need a moral voice. Uh, Alicia, some years ago, uh, I was invited to speak uh, on International Holocaust Remembrance Day at a church. And the pastor there uh, said to me, isn't it, isn't it very meaningful for you that on the church calendar we have Holocaust Remembrance Day? And I said, yes, yes, it's very important. I said, but do you have Israel Independence Day on the calendar? And he said, no, we're not there yet. And I thought to myself, it's an interesting, insightful statement when you can recall Jews as victims, but not Jews as victors when they fight back. That's a different story. Not everybody can tell that so easily. What are your thoughts there? I think it's actually much worse than that. Look at what happened this weekend, Rob Potasnik, in Colleyville, mm-hmm. while Certainly the Jewish world held our collective breath to see what would happen with the hostages um, being taken prisoner over the release of Afia Siddiqui, you know, called Lady Al-Qaeda. While the Jewish world held its collective breath, the Presbyterian Church chose this weekend to issue a statement from the Reverend Dr. J. Herbert Nelson II, who then went on to imply that U.S. Jews are responsible for the enslavement of the Palestinians an unbelievably dangerous anti-Semitic trope. So I would, I would say that it's actually much worse than that. And as you know, Rob Potasnik, when I spoke at the unveiling of my father's statue at the Washington National Cathedral, this was the message that I took directly to uh, National Cathedral leadership and, and Christian leadership, which is there is a problem of anti-Semitism in the ranks, particularly on the issue of Israel where there are lies and twistings of the truth that need to be addressed. You know, as I read the rise and fall of the Third Reich and the history, the early history of, of, of Hitler, and how it was a natural progression over time. It's not like he ascended to power instantly, immediately, and then, you know, began uh, this type of uh, murder. It was 
political systems, social systems over time within a society, and, and that society not paying attention to this whole notion of scapegoating. I think that's why it's so important that you continue to exercise that word. Remember, every year, every opportunity, and at any raising of the head of anti-Semitism, there should be an immediate response. Yeah, I think of uh, Joachim Prince, who was the rabbi of Berlin, who said that this so-called educated nation, Germany, became a nation of silent onlookers. And I think, Alicia, your father would talk about the sin of silence, how so many people who outwardly had education, you know, we talk about education being the panacea. Uh, they weren't necessarily morally educated, but they, they had other credentials. But they, they sat in silence. And uh, you know silence is a form of acquiescence. Rob Patelnik, can I take a moment to um, reflect on what I think of as a moment of recent heroism on this topic? Sure. I think it's very impressive that of all places to see heroism emerge on the international stage, the Women's Tennis Association should appear as a great hero. But look at how the Women's Tennis Association reacted when Pang Shui was disappeared. You know, this woman who had raised sexual assault allegations on a senior member of the Chinese Communist Party, and mm -hmm. all of a yeah. sudden she's disappeared, and the Women's Tennis Association has a real decision to make. This is going to be dollars for them. This is probably the most lucrative championship they have, all sorts of money and business interests tied up, and they said, we don't believe what we're seeing. We're not convinced by these appearances that are, that are starting to show up. She looks like she's in trouble. We're pulling out. There have to be consequences. Yeah. I think that's admirable and should be recognized. Yeah, you you need that activism. You need people with with you know that backbone. It's not enough to just you know have the jawbone. You need the backbone, uh, and it's important, especially for young people, to see those manifestations of real heroism. So at least they have you know uh, some role models to emulate in their lives. Reverend, I, I, plan, yeah, I plan on watching women. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, I'll, I'll ask my question. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't usually watch women's tennis, but I'm now, you know, making a, a you know, a plan for myself that this is going to occupy some of my sports watching time. <laughs> my wife won't let me watch because of the outfits that uh, the tennis players wear, <laughs> the female tennis players wear. So I'm banned. But uh, let me ask you a question, though, uh, 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 Alicia. Uh, do you think all of this really sets this, set the stage and accelerated the reality of the state of Israel, that a, a nation to be born in 1948 as a result of all of this? I think the, the wheels were very much in motion for the creation of the state of Israel. Anyway, I think that the British were quite tired of trying to bring peace and order to this area of the world and were quite eager to um, kick this over to the United Nations and make it their problem. That is my overall sense. But I, I don't doubt that it did weigh in, in thoughts and considerations of, you know, everyone from President Truman to all the other big decision makers of the day. But, you know, my father had a, had a real perspective on this. He, he was always very adamant that we should never, ever, ever consider the creation of State of Israel, no matter how miraculous it might be and how uh, important it is as the one credible guarantee in this world that the Jewish people will never be exterminated again. No matter how much he appreciated that, he always refused to see it as in any way 
um, well, the Holocaust was the price for this, and this was the reward. He, he felt that the Holocaust is one of the most terrible things that ever happened, and the creation of Israel is one of the greatest things that ever happened for the Jewish people in the world, but he would never take any comfort. Um, the Holocaust was never an acceptable price to pay for anything. I like the way you, you, you put that, that uh, uh, it was the result or the benefit that came from it, because who would want to think that six million people have to die like that in order to, to birth a nation? Uh, I, you, know, I, you know, in America, we, we have uh, a wide uh, array of evangelical Protestants who feel that the nation of Israel being established in 48 was the fulfillment of you know, prophecies from uh, the prophet Isaiah and, you know, set in motion their eschatological thinking. Uh, Rabbi, and I'll ask both of you, where do the Jewish people themselves uh, stand with regard to uh, this being some prophetic fulfillment? Or do you at all see it that way? Alicia? Gosh, there's, uh, maybe you should go first on this one, Rob. Look, I, I am a firm believer, as Ed Koch said, we need friends. Uh, and, you know, we can stand against those who seek to proselytize the vulnerable, uh, but we can also stand with those who are ready to stand with us. And in a world where so many have abandoned us, so many have sat in silence, uh, I think the evangelical voice uh, is uh, an important one uh, that needs to be vocal in its recognition of the importance of Israel and the Jewish people. Um, you know, Kufi, Christians United for Israel, uh, Pastor mm -hmm. Hagee, uh, mm -hmm. is, a, is a major figure. Now, that doesn't mean I have to agree. Look, you know, we always have, it's interesting, we always have disagreements with, with a number of you. We don't agree 100% with many, many people, certainly theologically. But there are places where we are on the same page. And uh, we can agree and disagree and retain a relationship. That's how I see them. And uh, again, when there's a paucity of friends, it's good to have those who are ready to uh, speak out on our behalf. You know, there's, a, there, there's a quote in one of my, in my father's memoirs, I believe, where um, I think it's either attributed to, to Martin Buber, but there's some conversation where he says, you know, we have so much in common with the Christians and, and you know, it's uh, hopefully one day there'll be this incredible moment when we're all together with the Mashiach, with the Messiah. And then there will be, of course, this very obvious question that we're going to want to ask, which is, were you here before? And then, of course, the answer is, no, 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 better not ask. Better <laughs> not ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Rabbi and I talk about that when I, you know, refer to the uh, Messiah had come, and he says... When he comes or comes again, yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, we'll leave it we'll there. We'll cover, cover both sides. But Alicia, uh, yeah. we, need, we, need, but we need their voice as well. We can, we can sharply disagree, you know, on certain theological positions if we wish. But in standing with the state of Israel when others do not stand, uh, I welcome their support. I, I would go further and say that there are so many values uh, that we share, and this is a time where family values are under attack, mm -hmm. where... So many excuses are being given to, you know, to legitimize the, the decay of the family unit. And I think that, you know, many of the Christians that I know feel as deeply as the Jews that I know, that the family is something worth keeping together and worth investing in as, you know, one of the atomic units that powers society in a healthy and successful way. So I think it's, 
Yes, the support is needed on Israel, but I actually think that the mutual aid and support go far deeper into so many aspects of mm -hmm. how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. I think there's a set of shared values um, in our Judeo-Christian faith, uh, because I will tell you, um, the Jewish family structure, uh, the set of values that govern family and relationships and the importance of family within the context of society or the foundation of society, the place of uh, first socialization of young people, which is a problem, because without that family or with broken families that we're seeing today, you know, uh, young people are not being socialized in a healthy way. And however they experience socialization in the family unit will determine their relationship with society at large. And we, we see some very broken relationships. I will tell you, I appreciate that Jewish heritage that lends to the, itself to the foundation of my Christian faith and Christian value system. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> again, we don't agree 100% probably with most groups. But, you know, if we can find 70%, we're doing pretty well. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Alicia, I want to ask you, growing up in your home, obviously your parents had endured so much pain during the Holocaust. Here you are growing up in a home where, you know, there are those memories. Talk about that home. Was there some happiness as well? Absolutely. There was, there was plenty of happiness. And, you know, many people have an impression of my father that he was always a somber um, person, always, always wrapped in sadness. And, of course, there was a part of him like that. How could there not be after what he had went through? But there was also a man with an incredible capacity for joy, which would be expressed not only in moments like the classroom, where he loved teaching young minds and, and watching them open up, um, but even in something silly like watching a movie like The Producers, you know what I mean? People are often surprised to hear that my father would laugh and laugh deeply, uh, you know, watching this show that ridiculed Hitler. But he, he, he loved it. It wasn't some sacrosanct thing. He, he appreciated humor, and, and very much so. But the thing that I really took away from my childhood in terms of what I remember was this life of service. Both my mother and my father, I think, had very deeply held virtues and concepts that to live life meant to live a life of service in one way or another to the community. Uh, and that's something that I was continually exposed to. You know, it's funny. We talk about Hitler and um, my wife, uh, talking to me the other day, she said, you know, I, I saw something on television and it was uh, some type of a documentary and they were celebrating Hitler as a hero. Um, she asked me, she said, did I miss something? Am I, am, I, am I confused? Is there some part of history that I may have missed? And I have to say that that's not the first time I'm seeing more and more of this. Rabbi, have you, have you been aware of, of, of these new documentaries? Uh, no, but I'm aware of news accounts. News accounts. Uh, there was a funeral recently uh, of a devotee of Hitler in a church, uh, and church officials denounced it. Somehow the coffin was brought there, unbeknownst to them. Uh, yeah, look, the neo-Nazi uh, party lives in many parts of the world. Uh, so I'm aware that Hitler is still regarded as a heroic figure in the eyes of some. And again, when you read these stories, you have to respond. It can't just be looking the other way and saying it's going to go away. It doesn't. One thing hatred has taught us, it doesn't disappear. We haven't found the vaccine uh, to uh, you know, prevent it. 
Uh, so we have much more work to do. And I was thinking, Alicia, Jack Klieger, who is the CEO of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, was talking to a survivor the other day. And she said when she saw the episode, when she saw what was taking place in Colleyville, that Texas synagogue, it, it brought such traumatic memories to her of Jews being held hostage, this time in a synagogue, now in America, you know, 80 years later after what she had endured. Obviously, there are differences, but still the thought that, you know, every synagogue has to have a security plan. Every house of worship has to have a security plan. Uh, you know, somebody wrote an article, and Reverend and I were talking about it the other day. Deborah Lipstadt wrote an article, going to services should not be an act of courage. Um, you know, imagine your father looking at, at, at this horrific story, what he would have thought. Look, it's kind of also amazing we don't have an anti-Semitism envoy yet. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not particularly partisan on this one, but it does seem that, uh, you know, Deborah Lipstadt is eminently qualified and should be moved into her position. Uh, you know, we, we were we were at, at a meeting this past week with the Commission of Religious Leaders, and Angela Bookdahl was, was there, uh, Rabbi uh, Bookdahl, and we had a chance to talk a little bit about, you know, her experience with this, what, what happened in Colleyville, uh, Texas. And she made a point, I don't know if you remember, Rabbi, that it's more than just uh, an attack on houses of worship. She felt that even more so it was an attack on, on the Jewish people, that there was anti-Semitism beyond just a hatred for a religious institution. Are you finding that to be the same? Yeah, I mean, uh, Rabbi Bookdahl mentioned that the reason uh, the hostage taker made the call to her is because he said, you know, America only serves the Jews. Whatever the Jews want, they can get, and you can make a call and get this party released from, from the, this terrorist released. He didn't use the word terrorist, obviously. But the, the whole idea that Jews control so many areas of life is something that, you know, is still with the protocols of the elders of Zion uh, is still alive in the minds of people. Alicia? Look, you know, I, um, I want to start by saying that our, our just a couple of moments ago in the conversation, we were talking about all the great commonalities between Christians and Jews on issues around family values, the, the love of knowledge, the respect due parents. And I believe very much that these are things also shared with our Muslim brothers and sisters. That said, in the wake of Colleyville, I think it's important for us to confront the fact that CARE, the Council for American Islamic Relations, uh, which is a group that has had a troubled past beforehand, they, you know, they had someone named Zara Bilhu, a senior member of their staff, who was broadcasting very widely messages such as, you know, Zionists are the enemies, even the Jews who you think are good, like the ADL, are the enemy. Uh, synagogues are, you know, are sources of evil Zionism. Is it really a surprise then that when, you know, CARE Texas is also brandishing uh, words in support of needing to free Afia Siddiqui, Lady Al-Qaeda, that someone, some deranged person, picks up the message and ultimately goes to a synagogue. I see real causality there. Um, I think that there is a, a, a tone and an, an acceptance of, of a tone towards U.S. Jews that needs to change from that corner. I, I, you know, it's interesting, Rabbi, and, and you mentioned this 
uh, and I think about it because you hear it again and again, the whole idea that Jews are controlling the world, Jews are controlling the economy, Jews are controlling everything. Um, we're all subject to Jewish power. I think about G.K. Uh, Chesterton, um, great um, Christian author and writer. He said, the modern world is not marked by skepticism, but by dogmatism, where the expression of an opinion or a belief is presented as though it were fact. Mm. And people capture these opinions as fact and then act on it because one of the things that was said about this particular hostage situation, the perpetrator uh, believed that about the Jewish community and believed that he had to react to this whole idea that Jews were controlling uh, everything. How do you guys respond to that? Well, I know some people who are hardened when they hear we control everything. They say, look, life is so depressing. I pick up an anti-Semitic paper and I see I control the banks, I control the media, uh, I control uh, the arts. It's nice to know we're, we have such power even though we really don't. Uh, look, unfortunately today, as you know, look at media, uh, social media. You, people don't fact check. You can say anything and everything on the, and you'll get a buy-in. People say, oh, that's, that's terrible. And, and then, they, then they further, you know, the message, they accentuate it. And it's not based on a truth. So I, I think we're, you know, some, in some ways we become very lazy. Uh, we, we'll put things out there without seeking to validate them, without seeking to, you know, to delve into whether they're true or not true. Yeah. Alicia, what do you say to that? Um, gosh, I mean, the accusation that we control the world is just a, a very old one. I mean, you think about how Soviet anti-Semitism stirred up, you know, Jews are the enemy because they're the capitalists, they're controlling all the money. And then meanwhile, in fascist Nazi Germany, Jews are the communists. They're the ones who want to erode our fabric by spreading all the money around. So I don't know. There's always these two poles of how we're attacked. And uh, unfortunately, things don't change in that yeah. regard. So, Alicia, uh, we have a few minutes left. Talk about what you teach your children you're a proud Jew. What do you ask of them? What do you try to instill within them, coming from the family uh, that you do? It's a great question. And you might actually expect, some have expected in the past, when I've been asked this question, that I spend a very significant amount of time talking about Holocaust memory with my children. And I don't ignore it. I took my son to both Seaget, which is where my father grew up, as well as to Auschwitz once he was bar mitzvah. But I'd say the bulk of our Jewish education between Lynn and myself, she's my wife, what we really do is we try to create a joyful Jewish home. I'm putting my chips, if you will, if I have to make a couple of bets on where should I invest my time and energy such that my kids will grow up to themselves be parents that embrace the value of a Jewish family, of a Jewish home. Um, I'm putting my chips on Shabbat, on Shabbos. Mm. And we invest our energy in having the most joyful Shabbat dinner we can. The candles, the songs, the, the prayers, the ritual, the, the thought that every Friday night is a lively table with discussion and debate and conversation segueing one into the other. It's a place to learn and sing and relax after a hard week. And then we don't work on Saturday. We, we put away worldly affairs and, and give ourselves a break where we just do what we want to do. And, you know, if, if my kids get nothing else but that, 10 years from now, I think that will be the one thing that keeps them connected to Jewish memory. 
I, I want to respond to that, Rabbi, because that's that's beautiful. It's it's wise, because symbols, and that's what that really is. You create a symbol of Jewish life that is indelibly marked on the minds of your children. And symbols have a unifying principle because, you know, people will follow a symbol long after the person who created the symbol uh, is, 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 is dead and gone. That's a very powerful yeah. thing. I mean, you know, we, we do the same around our Christian faith in, in our home on specific holidays that we celebrate our faith. But uh, that's a powerful image yeah. you just painted there, uh, uh, Alicia. You know, I talked to my son about this very issue and uh, we both agree, if the only message we convey to the next generation is the pain of being a Jew, then we have not succeeded. We're not going to create positive Jews predicated only on a negative. Uh, the joy of Jewish life. Deborah Lister talks about the joy of Jewish life and the oy of Jewish life. We can't simply focus uh, on victimhood because many will say, why should I, why should I retain my Jewish identity if it's simply you know, uh, about being victimized. It's about being attacked. So uh, I like what Alicia says. Uh, when I was in school, I remember Rabbi Riskin was one of my professors, and he would invite each one of us to his home for the Sabbath because he wanted us to experience the joy of the Sabbath. And that was far more consequential than simply having a, you know, a talk about history. Uh, mm. So I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, that's, you know, not that, not that we lose the lesson, not that we don't teach the lesson, but there has to be more than just the pain of the past. You know, Rabbi, I have to think of the, a, a song that we actually sing uh, in our worship service celebrating the liberation of the Jewish people from Egypt. Mm -hmm. And that song simply states that God brought them out, not to leave them in the wilderness, but to bring them into the promised land. And I think that's so important because we can see ourselves as someone struggling to get out, but where are we going? Yeah. And there is a future. There and, is a hope. And remember that that artistic depiction of Moses carrying that box with the remains of Joseph, of hmm. Jacob, right? Because they, they pleaded, don't leave us behind. Don't hmm. just leave us in that moment of the past. Take us with you to the future. Uh, and, and I think there, there's a message there as well that we can't just be transfixed uh, in all the negative that occurred, but let's, let's also involve ourselves in so much of the positive and some, some beautiful stories. Alicia, any parting words for uh, celebration of this International Holocaust Week? Yeah, I think for the commemoration, my, my real parting words to everyone is, it's important to remember the six million, it's important to feel that solemnity, but I think the world really has such a crisis on its hands with what's developing with the mm. Uyghurs in China right now. It's really my number one concern. And when I think about 2022, it's something that I certainly want to spend some energy on. You know, it's said when we're reunited with loved ones and they ask us, what did you do after we left you? We should be able to say we never forgot you. Alicia Wiesel, I've come to know you, admire you. You never forgot your father. You carry his voice with you. You honor your mother wherever you go. Uh, and for that, you are really deserving of our respect. Uh, and may you continue to stay strong, have that strong voice. Amen to that. <laughs> and thank, thank you, you for being on the program. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more of the Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. 
Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Always have always a pleasure to have him on. Uh, you can see how he pauses uh, mm-hmm. to respond to the questions because he wants to think them through. And I, I like that. I respect that. I think his father was similar. As I recall, you would ask him a question, he would pause for a moment, reflect, because he wanted to give you an answer that had some insight, not a, mm-hmm. just a, a, you know, a reflexive response. Uh, I remember his father said something years ago that I've often mentioned to people. The story of two people in a wilderness have a canteen of water, and there's enough water for one to drink. If both drink, both die. One drinks, one survives. The question is in the Talmud. Uh, who gets the drink from the canteen? And there's an argument, keeping with Talmud tradition, an argument back and forth. The owner drinks it. No, no, you give it to the guest. And finally, the consensus is that if you own the canteen, you have a, you have a right to, to drink it. You have a responsibility to save your own life first. And we Really? Zell, yeah, yeah. Hmm. And Wiesel hmm. said, you may be able to drink the canteen, but you better know that you have a responsibility to the one who didn't drink from the canteen. And, you know, that should guide your, the rest of your life. What am I going to do for the person left behind? And I think that's what motivated Weasel so much. I have to speak out for the six million and so many other millions who lost their lives uh, because of human hatred. Uh, and that's why you see Alicia uh, is talking about the Uyghurs in China. And, you know, the Olympics go on. The, uh, that expression, the show must go on. No matter what happens, the show <laughs> must go on. And we religious people say, no, no, the show can stop. The show can stop. Uh, must stop. Um, so I respect And I hope that. we, yeah, I, I hope by doing that we bring a sense of higher values mm-hmm. than, you know, the show or the business at hand. Um, we have to elevate the human person as what drives us, what motivates us to make decisions about life and in life. Uh, and I think that's what religion brings to the table. You know, I was thinking as he talked about the Sabbath and uh, having been to your uh, church, the Christian Cultural Center, many times, you walk away with a, a sense of hope, a sense of optimism, a sense of joy. And people need that, especially in these times. And I think the fact that on the Sabbath day so much attention is paid to the joy of Jewish life, at your service so much attention is paid to the joy of Christian life, Hmm. Uh, that people need that exhilarating experience to know that, you know, life is not just about suffering. We can talk about suffering, but there has to be also life about celebration. And uh, I think it, 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 it resonates with people, obviously, given, you know, the many people who attend yours. And uh, I see it in the Jewish world. Give us, give us services. Give us experiences that are positive, and the people will come. Yeah, you know, you, you, you've said something just in passing so naturally again and again in many of our conversations. And you talked about uh, the Jewish tradition of, you know, discussing a, a, a text and trying to understand how to apply it morally. I think that is so important, Rabbi. We've gotten away from having conversations where we are tested in terms of our moral values and our moral beliefs. Uh, I think that is so important 
to, to restore that. When we think about the what if, who, whose life should I save? Should I save my own? Mm -hmm. uh, should, I, should, should we share and, and, and both die? Those are critical moral questions, and we don't do enough um, reflection uh, and thought when it comes to these moral questions, and yet we're facing them every day. You know, you know I, I think of uh, the rabbi years ago who gave a sermon on you know, moral responsibility, and very you know, a tough sermon, and Karin comes over to him and says, Rabbi, you really gave it to them. And he didn't, re you know, and he didn't realize he was talking to him too. You know, you know, it's not just about them. Uh, yeah, and I and I think when we give a sermon, and you're so good at this, um, there are some action steps. It's not just about hearing a message about someone or something. It's a message that, what do I do when I walk out of the sanctuary? What's my what are my next steps? Uh, and I think that that's very important. That religion. Uh, has to, you know, it's not just about the one day a week. It's about what you do the rest of the week. You know, we have a wonderful passage in, in, the, uh, in our New Testament, in the book of James. It says, not the hearer of the word, but the doer mm -hmm. of the work. Yeah, yeah. That's the one that will be blessed. Yeah. And that is so good. Yeah, we say it's not just about the creed, it's about the deed. Uh, mm, you know, yeah. it's, belief is measured by behavior. Houses of worship have windows. What we say on the inside, you have to see on the outside. Um, and, you know, I think, I think there are, I see this dichotomy where people feel if they're fulfilling the ritual, if they're attending services, that completes my responsibility. I'm now good, you know, and there's no connection for some, and it's wrong, no connection, no nexus between ritual and, you know, uh, morality. Uh, hmm. You know, you look at, for example, keeping kosher. The whole idea of keeping kosher is to establish boundaries in life that there, there are times you can eat certain things and not eat certain things. There's behavior you can do and behavior you cannot do. Um, you have to have those uh, important, uh, you know, the boundaries, the moral boundaries, not just about, you know, the eating. Uh, it, it's about the doing uh, and behaving in such a way that... Uh, you, you have these reminders very often, don't cross this line. You know, in my, in my study of our scripture uh, and embracing the whole idea of clean and unclean, uh, it took me a minute to appreciate and understand that it wasn't just a dietary law that God was giving, but it was about boundaries. It was about understanding that there, there is good and evil, there is good and bad, there is what is righteous and what is unrighteous and we need to live a life aware of these things and aware of those boundaries and to respect them as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Kosher is not just about food. Kosher is right. about behavior. Yeah. You know, when you say that wasn't kosher, that means you acted improperly. You acted improperly. Uh, and, you know, we, I, I know that uh, our ministry uh, of all faiths deal with people who uh, are, are incarcerated. And, you know, hmm. we have chaplains who selflessly serve them. And one of the missions of those chaplains is to make sure they don't come back. You know, that whatever wrong you committed, let it be the last wrong you committed that's going to send you to prison. Right. Uh, so we have a great responsibility to make sure the boundaries that were somewhat blurry uh, before you got here are very clear when you leave here hmm. uh, so you don't return. Then we'll know we have succeeded. And life without boundaries is dangerous. I'm going to tell you, in a practical way, my first trip to 
South Africa. Um, this was no, no. In fact, it was Zimbabwe. My first trip to uh, Harare, and we were in a vehicle driving uh, along the highway there. And you know, it was, this was uh, uh, late uh, 1989. And I will tell you, Rabbi, there were no, <laughs> there were no lines drawn for lanes, <laughs> and traffic was. Going both ways, but yeah. with no lines, no boundaries, and I will tell you, it was it was quite scary, and and they knew how to navigate, but uh, that's not the kind of life that you want to live, where there are no clear boundaries, there are no lanes. Well, you know? I I've seen people where there are clear lanes, clear boundaries, and they don't give a damn. <laughs> they just go to any lane they want to go. They they don't obey the boundaries. So sometimes you can have them drawn out for you, but that doesn't mean you're going to follow them. This was a this was a very good program, and I'm and I'm glad that we had a chance to spend time with Alicia Wiesel and talk about Holocaust remembrance. Uh, but I, he also took us in a direction that you have to in life you have to have that balance where you look back but you also look forward. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Well, you gave a great quote, man. You had me look it up. Uh, you talked about Dr. King's quote that um, you know we we must accept finite disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never lose infinite, infinite hope. hope. Yeah. That's that's exactly a beautiful quote. And I and I think that that has to be a foundational element of our service to our people. That you mm-hmm. have to have people who walk away and say there's hope for the future. Because without hope, why should they even continue? You and I Absolutely. are going to be spending time with the the people who suffered uh, through that horrific fight, losing families. You have to bring a message of hope even in the, yep. in the midst of horror. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you next week. All right. And I, I hope that this program gives you hope, our listeners. And we thank you for joining us every Sunday right here on 77 WABC at our new time, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., where I get to hang out with uh, one of the dearest friends I have and appreciate well, my I, rabbi. Look, I look forward to it. And the good news is that you know we don't just uh, spend time with each other once a week. Uh, I think there are at least, what, three to four phone calls a day. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a relationship that runs deep. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, he's taught thank me you. patience. You, you <laughs> out there, the rabbi has taught me a lot of patience. So. <laughs> it's a good quality to have. All right. So until next week, same time, same place, God bless.